0: As we come to the time of this evening's sermon, I turn to Matthew chapter 5 as our starting point in terms of scriptural reference. As we continue making our way through the topics covered in the Westminster Confession of Faith, we come this evening to the chapter on oaths and vows. The title of that chapter is of lawful oaths and vows, so we're dealing with Lawful oaths and vows. What is lawful for Christians to vow or to take an oath, to commit themselves to? This evening here we read an oft-misunderstood passage. We'll give some context here tonight as well that will help us understand it. In Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read here verses 33 through 37. So this is the Lord's Word as he inspired the Apostle Matthew to recall perfectly the words of Jesus Christ and to record them faithfully under his inspiration. So this is the very word of the living God, again, Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. And This is Jesus speaking. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And this ends the reading of God's holy word for us this time. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, we pray that you would bless the reading, the preaching, the hearing of your word this evening. Grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, that we might grow up to the fullness of the image of Christ Jesus, who is our perfect Savior. So we pray in his name. Amen. Something I mentioned a while back in our study of what the appropriate elements of public worship of God are was that oaths and vows may be included in worship services when the occasion warrants it. That's what we noted was taught by the Westminster Confession we might think of things like ordination vows, baptismal vows, and so on, the, the covenant of communicant membership, which the queries of which and the answers to them are, in effect, vows, promises that we're making to God. There are other oaths that may be uh, in the context of the civil government and presidential, uh, presidential oath of office, for example, or when we take an oath, if you've ever had to testify in court, you're considered, quote, under oath. And sometimes, I was a bit disturbed one time when I had to, to give testimony in a court, and they just declared me to be under oath, and I hadn't taken any oath. <laughs> that was rather disturbing. I should have had to say it. I, would, I wouldn't have had any qualms about saying that I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And of course, I can go on about that being frustrated on an occasion when I was asked a question by a lawyer and he wouldn't let me finish answering it because I, he only wanted to hear part of my answer because it confirmed his bias, uh, but I had promised to tell the whole truth, not part of the truth. But that's, a, that's an oath that's perfectly lawful for us to take. And while they overlap, there is a basic distinction between an oath and a vow that the confession gives, and we'll get to here. But it's basically that an oath is, is a promise made to other human beings with God as witness, and that a vow technically is a promise made directly to God. And I think that that's an interesting distinction, considering that we don't say when we get married, for example... That we're taking marriage oaths. That's why I'm not big on people writing their own marriage vows. Sometimes because they're often just, just making a promise to the other person. When really a marriage vow, if that's what it really is, is a commitment to God. Not just a commitment to the person before us. We don't take wedding oaths; we take wedding vows. And so, you know, when a man says, "I, Bill, take you, Sally, to be my wife," I, and I promise to love and honor and cherish you, and so on. Uh, he's really making that promise to God, not just to her. Whether Sally holds him accountable or not, God will. And so, there's there can be no such thing as a so-called open marriage, where the the spouse. Freeze the other spouse from from certain obligations from the wedding vows. No, the, the commitment was made to God, and God still will hold you accountable. Your faithfulness, your diligence in your marriage isn't about how you happen to feel about your husband or your wife that day. It's about your relationship with the Lord. Now, considering the oaths and vows can be taken in the context of formal worship. Or outside of it, but there's still a worshipful act in that sense. The Westminster Assembly uh, put their chapter in the confession, I think, strategically here. The chapter on oaths and vows falls right between the chapter on worship and the Sabbath and the chapter on the civil magistrate, because both contexts are contexts where lawful oaths and vows might be taken. The chapter on lawful oaths and vows begins this way. A lawful oath is a part of religious worship, Wherein, upon just occasion, the person swearing solemnly calleth God to witness what he asserteth or promiseth and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he sweareth. That last part, of course, is particularly pertinent when you're swearing to tell the truth in a court case, right? But wherever an oath is taken, the confession says, really, it's an act of religious worship, Because a lawful oath is really calling upon God to witness that oath and hold the oath taker to his promises or to judge him for breaking them. Of course, we in the Reformed Presbyterian Church have a a just suspicion of secret societies. And... uh, and there are issues sometimes with the oaths and vows taken, but of course the, the main point, as our testimony says, is that, that secret societies are, are uh, belonging to them are, is often inconsistent with a Christian witness. But one thing that you might, uh, might have heard about the, the Freemasons uh, Society, the Secret Society of the Freemasons, is that they don't allow... An atheist to join why would they not allow an atheist to join well the historic reason for that is perfectly logical in light of what we just learned about oaths even though we have a problem with with uh, the existence of the secret society in the in the first place we wouldn't disagree with this problem that they would have why why would they have a problem with an atheist joining well because who's going to hold him accountable to any oath he takes? <laughs> Why would he be afraid to break an oath? Because the notion is that there is a God that holds you accountable to the oaths that you take. So wherever an oath is taken, in a sense, it is an act of religious worship because all lawful oaths are calling upon God as witness and they're asking God, hold me accountable. Judge me for breaking this. If I turn out to be a liar, don't let me off. And then that's an assurance to the people that you're committing to, or that you're making this promise to. That you're saying, may God hold me accountable. Righteous Job saying, if I'm lying about God, may my shoulder blade fall off. What a rather gruesome thing to think of. Deuteronomy 10.20 says, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him, and by His name you shall swear. I'll come back to this in a little bit here, but but notice that that's one of the things that Jesus doesn't say when He says, don't swear. You'll notice that what He's using when He says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all. And people will stop there and say, well, see, Jesus says never swear an oath at all, so you should never swear an oath. So you can't ever become the President of the United States. You can't ever take an oath of office. You can't give testimony in a court. No, that's not what he means. Partly of what he's using here is a Semitic figure of speech. Remember, he was speaking in Aramaic. But he gives a list of the things that you shouldn't swear by. He says, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Or, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no no. But you'll notice that he doesn't say, never swear by the name of the Lord. He'd be contradicting scripture there. He said that Deuteronomy ten twenty says, "You shall name by or you shall swear by the name of the Lord." If you swear an oath, it has to be by the name of the Lord. Jesus is simply saying that we'll get into the details of it here. You can't get out from under the oath simply because you didn't call upon the, the Lord directly. So it's acceptable to swear oaths, but only if you're doing them rightly in the name of the Lord. You're calling upon the true God. To witness your oath, as the confession says, the name of God only is that by which men ought to swear, and therein it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. So don't use it lightly, but with all holy fear and reverence. Recognize who you're actually asking to witness your oath. Therefore, to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name, or to swear at all by any other thing is sinful. And to be abhorred. Yet, as in matters of weight and moment, an oath is warranted by the Word of God under the New Testament as well as under the Old, so a lawful oath being imposed by lawful authority in such matters ought to be taken. So, in other words, if you can't hold a particular position without taking a lawful oath, then take it. If there's anything unlawful about it, don't agree to that. But if there's anything lawful, that is if it's consistent with God's word, you're not swearing an oath to sin in some way, then that's perfectly fine. And the lawful authority has the right to expect you to take that oath under certain conditions. Those have to be sworn with the understanding that God will hold us accountable and anyone who knows this will swear by the Lord's name only the lord's name must never be used lightly think of exodus 20 verse 7 you shall not take the name of the lord your god in vain for the lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain and we take the lord's name in vain not simply when we use it as a curse word which is the way that we mostly think of it people using it as some kind of epithet but if we make a promise in his name and we don't keep it or if we make a promise and don't intend to keep it that's even worse Failing to keep ordination vows, baptismal vows, wedding vows, uh, vows of church membership, an oath of office. I'm saying vows here because we'll see the same kinds of rules pertain to vows when we get there. Any failure in these things takes the Lord's name in vain. So we have to be careful not to swear oaths or to make vows rashly or hastily. Because we have to be reasonably assured that we can keep them. Let the story of Jephthah be a warning to you. Jephthah's story is found in Judges 11 and 12. Jephthah was a mighty leader among the Israelites, especially those who lived on the east side of the Jordan River. Before, he go, before going to battle, Jephthah superstitiously swears, thinking that this will sort of earn him points with God, so to speak, that if he wins... He will sacrifice to the Lord the first thing that he sees coming out of his gate when he returns home. We can't bribe God like that. And I think that Jephthah was taught in God's providence a distressing lesson about that. Though he didn't react to that correctly, as we'll see here. So he wins the battle against the Ammonites, and he returns home. And the first thing he sees coming out of his gate is not a lamb or a goat or a bull, but his only child, his beloved daughter. Now what Jephthah should have done there is consider the law that God gave through Moses, and he would recognize that when you find that you swear rashly and that you can't actually keep an oath without sinning, then what you're supposed to do is repent and go and make a particular sacrifice at the Lord's altar but rather than repenting of the sin of taking the rash vow, Jephthah goes through with sacrificing his daughter, of course, which is an even worse sin. So be careful not to take an oath rashly. And if you find that you do repent of it, then thanks be to God, Christ has already paid the penalty for your sins. So flee to Him. But we also have to mean what we promise. In Jesus' day, many Jewish teachers were saying that an oath made in the name of anything but the name of the Lord directly didn't count. In Deuteronomy we find, right, that, well, you shall swear by the name of the Lord. By him only shall you swear. We just read that a few minutes ago. And so what some rabbis in Jesus' day were saying was, so it's not really an oath if you swear by something else. So some Jews would cheat their Gentile neighbors in business deals, for example, by swearing by heaven or by the temple or by Jerusalem or by the hairs of their head. Now, a pagan thought, well, if I swear by Zeus's temple or the altar of Baal, they would anger Zeus, it would anger Baal for breaking the oath. So he believed the Jew who swore by the Lord's temple was going to hold himself accountable to to keep the oath. And then the Jew would say, no, I didn't actually swear by the name of the Lord and felt felt free not to keep his word. So in Matthew 5, Jesus points out that, that all oaths are to God, whether you use something else and you shouldn't, but if you use something else and you swear by the temple or by Jerusalem or by the hairs of your head, you'd better mean yes when you say yes and no when you say no. Everything else comes from the evil one. Any intent to get out from under your promises, that's what comes from the evil one. So out of context, some have taken Jesus to mean that we should never swear oaths at all, as I said before, but but Jesus was dealing with this false teaching that a promise made without naming the Lord directly could be broken. And he said, you'd better mean it when you say it. Let your yes be no, yes and your no be no. In 2 Corinthians 1.23, for example, Paul swears an oath with God as witness. If it was wrong to swear an oath, it's pretty funny because God there inspired Paul to write about swearing an oath. In Acts 18, we know that he made a religious vow. So oaths especially ones necessary for a particular situation, oaths of allegiance, oaths of office, an oath to swear to tell the truth in court, those are appropriate to take. Because it's so sacred and solemn, though, we need to think carefully before taking an oath, and so the Confession points that out as well. Whosoever taketh an oath ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act. So don't take it lightly, right? Don't don't rush into it. And therein to avouch nothing but what he is fully persuaded is the truth. Neither may any man bind himself by oath to anything but what is good and just, and what he believeth so to be, and what he is able and resolved to perform. Yet it is sin to refuse an oath touching anything that is good and just, being imposed by lawful authority. So. Don't take an oath if you're not resolved to perform it. But on the other hand, there are certain contexts in which you're going to have to take an oath if you're going to do X, Y, or Z. So again, if you're going to give testimony in court, you'd better be willing to swear to tell the truth. But be careful what you bind yourself to in your oaths. That's what Jesus means when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't make... An oath or a vow with your fingers crossed behind your back, so to speak. Remember R.C. Sproul saying that when he was in the mainline Presbyterian church that you know he took ordination vows and so did everybody else who was ordained around the same time, but it seemed like they were taking those vows with their fingers crossed behind their backs. And I can tell you from my experience in my former denomination that that seems to be truly the case. You know, people promised to submit to the very confessional standards that we're studying right now. But didn't. In a lot of cases, I don't think even knew what the content of those standards were. Don't do that. Don't make an oath with your fingers crossed behind your back, knowing that you don't actually intend to keep it. Make sure what you're promising is good according to God's law. You know we can't just make up what's good according to ourselves, but it has to be good according to God's law Ecclesiastes five two be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven, and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few and again, we have to mean what we say Ecclesiastes five five and just a few verses later, it is better. That you should not vow, then that you should vow and not pay. A good and just oath, or in that case a vow, should not be refused, but we have no right to take the commitment and not mean it. And also not to mean what it's plain we're saying. This is another problem, say in my former denomination and others, that they'll, they'll say, well, yeah, sure, I took that ordination vow, but here's what I really meant by it. But the confession says an oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words without equivocations. In other words, without saying, well, I mean something different by this word that I know you understand. You know, politicians do that a lot. The double speak. Where they they say one thing and they're defining the word differently than they know everybody else is. Sometimes... uh, Liberal theologians and Bible scholars will do that too. They'll, I've told you about before. They'll try to pull the fast one. They'll say, "Well, in literary circles, of course, you know the definition of myth just is a a story that is meant to explain how things are the way they are, why things are the way they are." And so, you know, the story of Adam and Eve, for example, explains the fall. That explains. How the world got to be the way it is. Why there's so much sin and suffering and destruction in the world. And so would you not agree that that is a myth? <laughs> Anyone, like C.S. Lewis would say that, well yes, that's, that's a myth. It's true myth. <laughs> right? So the difference is the pagan stories about how the world got to be the way it is are made up myths. But this is a myth in the sense of a story that explains how the world got to be how it is. But it's true. This is the truth of how these things happened. But the, the liberal will often try to pull that fast one and they'll get you to agree that oh yeah, so, so in that sense if we're defining the word like that. Well then yes, that's a myth but I understand that it's nevertheless something that really happened but then they'll turn around and say see, even Daniel says that it's a myth. And they know that everybody else understands the word myth to mean a made up story that's not true. That's equivocation. Right? Where you're You're switching the meanings in the middle. An oath is to be taken, the Confession says, in the plain and common sense of the words, without equivocation or mental reservation. So without saying, I'll keep this oath as long as, it doesn't inconvenience me. It cannot oblige to sin, but in anything not sinful being taken, it binds to performance, although to a man's own hurt, nor is it to be violated, although made to heretics or infidels. So we can't say, well, an oath to an unbeliever isn't really an oath. No, you just don't have to keep your word. What does it say to the world when God's people refuse to keep their word to unbelievers? It says we can't be trusted. It just gives them ammunition against the people of God. Psalm 24.4 says that we cannot approach God unless we do not swear deceitfully tricking others with our words, having a deceptive contract that takes advantage of others. That's sin. Psalm 15.4 blesses the man who swears to his own hurt. Is it not that he swears in the first place trying to hurt himself, but the man who swears an oath and then finds, well, keeping this isn't breaking God's law, but if I keep it, it's going to damage me financially, it's going to be hard, but he still does it. It's going to put me in danger. He still doesn't. He keeps his oaths and vows even when it's not convenient. Now so far the confession has dealt with oaths but it's wording about vows is similar and so that's why I've been interchanging these things so far but I'll just read to you what it says about vows. A vow is of the like manner with a promissory oath and ought to be made with the like religious care, and to be performed with like faithfulness. The only difference is that it's a promise made directly to God, not simply to other people calling upon God as witness. Numbers 30, verse 2, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So just like oaths, a lawful vow is made to God alone. And so that's why the Confession says it is not to be made to any creature but to God alone. Of course, this is even more so with vows, because you're actually supposed to be promising directly to God, so you can't have any, uh, anything in between, or a false god, or something else as mediator, for Christ, who is also God, is the only mediator between God and man. It is not to be made to any creature but to God alone, and that it may be accepted. It is to be made voluntarily, out of faith and conscience of duty, in a way of thankfulness for mercy received or for obtaining of what we want. So thanking God for something he's already done or saying, Lord, I will do this thing, praying that you will give me this blessing. It has to be something consistent with his word, though. As whereby we strictly bind ourselves to necessary duties or to other things so far and so long as they may fitly conduce thereunto. So we might think of, in the Old Testament, the Nazarite vow. Or somebody would commit themselves to serving the Lord for a particular period of time, and during that time they would say, I will not cut my hair, I won't drink any alcohol, I won't touch any unclean thing. Psalm seventy-six, eleven: Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 through 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to fulfill it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord. So notice it's voluntary; it's voluntary. So where, whereas oaths can be compelled in certain circumstances, and a vow can't be compelled. It's completely voluntary. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So again sinful vows must not be taken. This is why by the way historically marriages can be annulled if somebody was forced into it. (laughs) You can't force someone to take a vow. As the confession says no man may vow to to do anything forbidden in the word of God or what would hinder any duty therein commanded. So think of Jesus condemning the people for, for committing something as Corban saying well I'm committing this part of my estate to the temple. And so, uh, sorry mom and dad, I don't have anything left over to take care of you in your old age. That was their first duty. So you can't can't use that as an excuse. So keeping the vow keeps you from performing a duty that God's already given you. You can't use that. You can't do that. You're not held to that vow to that degree. So no man may vow to do anything forbidden in the word of God or what would hinder any duty therein commanded or which is not in his own power or for the performance whereof he hath no promise or ability from God. Vow, vow to do something that's impossible for man to do. <laughs> well, you shouldn't do that. It's a sin to do such a thing. And so the confession says, in which respect... Popish monastical vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. By regular obedience, the confession there means the regulations of the monastery. People are vowing themselves to a commitment that most people don't have a calling to keep look at what we saw in 1 Corinthians 7 about marriage and why most people should seek it. Hebrews 13.4 tells us marriage is to be held in honor by all claiming that celibacy is better belittles that. Some are called to one and some are called to the other but as we saw in 1 Corinthians 7 we should never consider that one is better than the other. Ephesians 4.28 extols earning our own living which vows of poverty tend to contradict. But in all these things, we see that it is appropriate to take lawful vows under the right circumstances, lawful oaths, consistent with God's good law. Such an oath or vow is sacred because God witnesses it. And so it is a worshipful act. It's a solemn act and one not to be taken lightly. Furthermore, all oaths and vows at their root are calling on the name of the Lord, whether people try to take the oath by something else or not. So breaking them violates God's character and takes his name in vain. So the main exhortation here is be careful what you promise. Be careful with your words. Take no oath or vow unless you're willing to keep it and understand that God will hold you accountable. Let's pray. Lord, help us to keep all lawful oaths and vows Let us not make them hastily or rashly or promise to do anything which is sinful. And if we find that we have, we pray that you would convict us and cause us to turn to you and to repent and not to compound a sinful oath by the keeping of it. Rather cause us to be careful with our words and to be forthright and honest in keeping our word, knowing that you are the God of truth For we pray in the name of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.